You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, Revolution. All right, that's what I'm talking about. Um, just real quick, this, is, this isn't a part of my sermon or anything, but like Brandon was talking about, um, with the shooting in Orlando, um, like I said, this is it's really somber. It's kind of it's it's scary, um, you know. Whether it be um, at a, at a nightclub or movie theater or you know just it's anywhere, it's it's kind of scary that it, that anything can happen uh, at any time. Um, one but one of the, one of the big things that we're going to be talking about this evening that actually would tie into that is we serve a God who's sovereign. Um, we serve a God whom whom is so in control that not one single thing happens. In this world, whether we view it as, as good or bad, whether it's an atrocity or whether it's something as beautiful as another human life coming into the world, that nothing happens unless he says, this is going to happen, right? And it's all part of his eternal plan. And I know that might sound like a cliche to some of you, but that is a biblical truth that we must ground ourselves in. Um, and we're going to talk about that a, a good bit this evening. Um, but I, I just want to implore you all to, to a couple of things. Um, don't, don't turn around and, and hate Muslims for this. Please don't. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul was a murderer as well, and then he became the most influential Christian who ever lived, um, arguably the, the holiest person who ever lived aside from Jesus. Um, so pray for them, um, you know, that these, that these Islamic terrorists would convert. And that, 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 honestly, anyone who doesn't know Jesus would convert um, because in all of us, in our unconverted state, we all have the capacity to be that kind of evil. If we're going to be honest, if the Lord did not sovereignly keep us in check and restrain us, we all have that capacity in us. Um, so pray. Pray for the gay community. Pray for the Muslim community. And, and, and we talked about this in the men's small group a little bit. This is prime time. If you know anyone in the homosexual community or you happen to be friends with or know any Muslims, reach out to them and let them know this is an atrocity and you don't personally blame them um, and that you might not affirm them in their sin, whether it's them not following, and both, of, both groups aren't following Christ, but whether it be, um, I don't hate you because you're gay, and this is a travesty against the gay community, and I don't hate you because you're a Muslim, and I recognize that you and your family are not directly responsible for what happened. This would be a great way for us to reach out and show them that Christians, not all of us are bigots. Um, because we know that there are going to be bigoted groups come on the news in the next week or so that are just going to blow up... Um, in the media, and they're going to make us all look bad. Um, so I would just really, really implore you all to, to fight that stereotype and reach out to anyone that you know that's a part of either of those communities. So that has nothing to do with our sermon uh, whatsoever. Just wanted to, to put a couple of things in your guys' head. Um, I would strongly encourage you into those things. Pray. Pray for those people. Uh, pray for those families. Pray for both of those people groups. Um, but, but getting into the sermon this evening. Tonight, um, we've, been, we've been doing this sermon series through the book of Acts. And uh, and Cooley did it last week. We're, we're not uh, we're not going in, in order in the book, which is something that a lot of people it's kind of throwing them off. Uh, last week Cooley was in chapter five. This week we're regressing to chapter four, um, and we're going to continue our study of Acts. And what we're doing this whole summer is we're looking at how the early church thought and how they lived, and we're doing our best to learn from their godly examples and also learn from their mistakes and, and the things that we don't want to replicate that they did. Um, you know, Acts is a history of the early church. 
um, that God gave to us, um, and, I, and I believe it's meant to guide us and show us how the church functions and what we should be striving for. Um, like I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31 this evening. Um, there are blue Bibles if you're new in the backs of those pews. Take that home. That's our gift to you. It's a really easy translation. It's also going to be up here on the projector behind me. Um, but actually, before we can get into uh, Acts chapter 4, we're actually going to have to go back to chapter 3 first. Um, and we're going to do that in a little bit. Um, but we're going to see this evening, or at least I hope that we all see, that... Um, we're going to see how the believers, rather, responded to an awful situation headed their way. All right, that's like the broad thing. Like, it gets more specific than that. Um, it's persecution that, that they're looking at. But this awful situation that's coming their way, and we're going to try to cultivate the same attitudes and practices that they had whenever they faced trials, horrible trials. Um, and this is really relevant for us because, you know, I don't know if you, and this always, this always makes me laugh. We've heard it said, or some of us have heard it said, that there are three groups of people, right? There are those coming out of a trial, those in the midst of a trial, and those getting ready to go into a trial, right? You're either coming out of something bad, getting ready to go into it, or you're in the middle of an awful time, right? And I, and I think that that is incredibly true, um, and that is because much of life is made up of suffering, right? And I know, like, man, like, that sounds really dark and, like, I listen to too much metal music, and maybe that's true. But like, I, I really truly believe that much of life is made up of suffering. There is certainly joy to be found. I see a huge source of joy walking down the aisle. Baby Lily, God bless her. See, like, there are all kinds of sources of joy in the world to be had. Um, God the Father being the source of all of those things that we find joy in. Uh, but suffering is always there. It's a constant thing. Right? That's why, even though it's your life is never like you're constantly moving like on a middle point, it's just up and down all the time, joy and sorrow, uh, happiness and suffering all the time. Um, and I think that's why the Bible speaks so often of suffering. Right? I've actually heard the Bible described by somebody as a book of suffering. It's what you see on almost every page. Um, don't get me wrong, there's always like, God our Father has our back, He is in control of the whole thing, but it's suffering on almost every page. Um, and I know that we've, we've covered these kinds of topics quite a bit in the past. Brandon was actually making fun of me for it a few weeks ago that I'm always talking about suffering. Um, but Scripture talks about it all the time. And if the Bible talks about it, we have to talk about it too. And, it, and however often it talks about it, we have to talk about it that often too. Um, and I think that the Bible talks about suffering and what our response should be to it so often because we're stupid. <laughs> right? Let's just call it what it is. We're really dumb. The Bible describes us as sheep. And I don't know if you've ever been around sheep. They're dumb. Like, they'll walk off a cliff if you don't keep them from doing that. Um, and, and, and we're just like that. We are really quick to forget essential truths about suffering and about God and about ourselves. We're really quick to forget those things. And we need reminded all the time because we are foolish people, right? If you're here and you're a Christian, you're justified by Christ and you're a saint, but you're also still a foolish sinner, right? It's, it's, it's this simultaneously justified and a sinner. So we need reminded of this all the time. Um, now, to give you guys a little bit of an insight into, into my head before we get into this, um, whenever I preach on this kind of stuff, what I'll do often is I'll, I'll make a list of people who I know are currently in the midst of trouble, right? And don't freak out. Like, no one sees the list, and I trash it once I'm done writing the sermon, so, like, don't, I don't got these lists that I'm going to blackmail you with. But, like, uh, but I, I, I keep a list whenever I'm writing um, so that these people and, and their specific problems are kind of rotating through my mind as I'm, as I'm thinking about the passage, um, and this week, I, I counted up about 20 people in this congregation. Now, if you've looked around, I counted before I got up here. There's about 50 people here. Right? So this is about half of our congregation are going through a lot of stuff. 
right? Various stuff, right? Um, so we need reminded of this. And I know there are people here with us that are, that are dealing with, uh, like, family strife, um, financial problems where they don't know how they're going to pay their bills next. Like, I, I know that that's a real thing in this congregation. Uh, I know people that I've talked to that are, are dealing with depression right now. Um, whether it be, you know, a chemical imbalance or whether it be, you know, situational depression or whatever it is. I know people are dealing with sickness in their family. I know people are dealing with recent deaths or an impending death of someone that they love. Um, I know people are dealing with apathy. I, I mentioned last week um, at the end of the service that I, I personally have felt spiritually dead the last couple of weeks. I know there are people dealing with apathy here. Um, and I also know that there are people who are dealing with fear of the future. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Right, that's a big one. That, that can resonate, I think, with everyone here, even if you can't think of anything specific, that I don't know what's going to happen, and it freaks me out a little bit, and I'm anxious. Right? So we need to be reminded of who God is and how we are to respond. Right? So let's dig into this passage and see how that we're going to persevere through the darkness. And while we do that, show God to be supreme in all of it. That's our goal. Right? But again, first, we have to get some context to the passage. If I just jump you guys into... Chapter 4, 23 through 31, you're going to have no idea what's going on. Um, so like I said earlier, this narrative that we're going to look at starts in chapter 3. And uh, we're going to see, or not going to see, because I'm not going to read the whole uh, two chapters to you. You're welcome. Um, although, go home and read chapters 3 and 4 of Acts, right? It won't take you that long. It's awesome. Um, but we're going to, or blah, 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 I keep wanting to say we're going to see. Mm, it's because I haven't read the text yet. Lord, help me. Um, <laughs> Peter and John. They, they are going to the temple, these are the two apostles, Peter and John, and they heal a beggar at the temple gate, right? This is great stuff. This, he's begging, he's like, hey man, you guys have any money? And he's like, you guys know the famous passage, silver and gold, have I none, but what I have is yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Madness, right? This cat has been lame and crippled for 40 years, and he gets up and he's jumping and following the apostles around. This is insanity, right? Um, and, and Peter healed him in Jesus' name. Right? And to heal in Jesus' name means, he, what he's saying in that moment is, by the authority of Jesus, by the person and work of Jesus Christ, I'm declaring healing on you, and he was healed. And Peter is very, very explicit in chapter 3 that it was Jesus' power that did it. So saying in Jesus' name, meaning it means Jesus himself healed this man. All right? It wasn't Peter, it was Jesus' power that did it. All right? And then all these people start swarming around Peter and John. Right? I mean, I would too, and you, if you were on like the other side of the temple, and all of a sudden this crippled guy that you've seen outside of the gates for 40 years is jumping and praising God. Madness, again. Like, I just can't get my head around that. That would be so cool to see. Um, and all these people, like just flocks of people, start surrounding Peter and John. And then Peter preached the gospel to those surrounding him after the miracle took place. And in doing that, he declares Jesus to be the Messiah. And, and he puts the guilt on the people for rejecting Jesus, and then says, but God raised Jesus. And this is proof of his Messiahship. He raised them from the dead, and then he calls them to repent. And, but then he also proclaims God's wrath against the unrepentant, that he would cut them off from his people for all eternity. Um, but then Peter declares salvation uh, for all who repent, right? All who turn from their sin, that that's actually what Jesus had come to do, was to turn them back away from their sin and turn them towards God. Um, he declares salvation from God by turning away from your sin and towards Christ. And I just want to make a note here. That's the same gospel that we declare. Always. Salvation by repentance. Salvation doesn't come by assenting to some mental facts about Jesus. It comes by faith, trusting Jesus' work was enough to save you, and turning from your sin and turning towards following Jesus. It's the only way. Actually, Peter says there is no other name uh, in heaven or earth by which we can be saved except through Jesus. Right, but he declares this gospel, and he declares it with boldness. 
right? And actually the Jewish leaders that, that see all this happening, they're like stunned by how bold that these guys are for Jesus. And then they arrest them, <laughs> right? So Peter and John then get arrested by the Jewish leaders at the temple for preaching this good news about Jesus, right? Preaching salvation through Jesus' name. Um, and then, not only are they arrested, but the Jewish leaders then threaten them against preaching in Jesus' name. And this is really cool. just want to read something to you real quick. Uh, this is chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John replied. So they say, don't, like, don't do it, man. Like, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Right? They were so resilient. Like, like I was talking to a couple of people this week. The audacity of the early church. Like, they did not care. Like, you could not stop them from being faithful to Jesus. Right? So I just wanted to read that to you real quick because they had resolved to be obedient to Jesus no matter what was going to come their way. No matter, you couldn't threaten them enough. They had a godly, Holy Spirit-fueled resolve to follow Christ no matter what. Right? So just throwing that out there. Keep that in mind. They were resolved to be obedient. So let's really, taking all that into consideration, let's really consider the, the situation that the believers are facing. All right? I just kind of want to get a big picture view of this. They are being threatened for preaching the gospel. Um, now, what, what the Jewish leaders ended up really doing to, to a lot of Christians, which, fun fact, more Christians were persecuted by Jews in the first century than Romans. There's a little piece of history for you. Um, they were threatened by the Jewish leaders for preaching. This is like social ostracism, that like no one will have anything to do with you, we're going to excommunicate you from the people, and you're going to have no family, and you're going to have no friends among the Jewish people, you're out of here, we're going to hate you. Um, they, they probably threatened them with beatings, right, and we know that because later on we see them being beat for preaching the gospel. Um, threatened them with jail, probably, because we see them being jailed <laughs> for preaching the gospel. And then ultimately they were probably threatened with death, um, because we know that a lot of people um, in the book of Acts were, were killed for preaching the gospel. These people had to have been afraid. I just laying that before you. Peter and John and the other believers who heard this had to have been terrified. Right? They had to have felt overwhelmed and possibly maybe even defeated. Right? Like, is this worth doing? How are we going to go on? And the reason why I say that, I, I would almost guarantee that they were afraid. Because they knew that these threats weren't idle threats. These are real threats. These are real problems that they were getting ready to go through. right? And actually had officially come upon them. But they knew this. They knew that they had to be faithful to Jesus. They knew that they had to persevere in faithfulness to Jesus. Why? Because he's their Lord and Savior. Right? He's the king of their life now. They have pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ. He has saved them from their sin. He has reconciled them to God. He had paid what they owed God for their sin. He'd suffered the wrath of God on the cross on their behalf. They had such just a, 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 just like a river flowing from them of gratitude for Jesus that they knew no matter what happens, I must be faithful to Christ. And they resolved to be obedient. They resolved to continue to be disciples. So this passage that we're about to read, I want us to look at it, all right, and, and, and not discounting the specifics that it was persecution that they were dealing with. I don't want us to discount that, but I really want to see what principles, I know this is a big, long intro, and I'm sorry, it's like the history in the world, longest intro, uh, but I want to see what this passage, what principles it teaches us about how Christians respond to fear, how we respond to anxiety, 
how we respond to feeling defeated, how we respond to feeling overwhelmed, and how we respond to wanting to give up, because I'm sure a lot of them were starting to have second guesses of whether or not following Jesus was worth it. But their gratitude held them in the faith. I'm convinced. Right? Don't, don't ever think that like these apostles and early church believers were like super Christians. <laughs> I do that sometimes. I'm like, well, sure, Peter and John weren't afraid. Like, they never had any misgivings about following Christ. Then I forget Peter denied Jesus whenever the heat was on before the crucifixion. Um, so they weren't super Christians. They could have felt all of those things. And I want to see how we respond. Right? The big question is, how are we to stay faithful to Jesus whenever we feel like that? I think that's really like what this passage is going to answer. How will we get through the darkness of hard times? This is like the heartbeat of this passage we're about to read. The believers are told to stop preaching, which is unfaithfulness, which conjured all kinds of responses in them. But since they had been born again by the Holy Spirit, which means it's just Christian lingo for being changed to desire Jesus. Their hearts now desired Christ. Because they had been born again, they knew that they had to remain faithful in spite of how they felt or what situation was coming upon them. Which, by the way, is the hallmark of a true believer. Just throwing that out there. Something, and it's the Holy Spirit, it's not something, it's someone. But like something keeps calling us back to Christ no matter how we feel. Anyone else ever felt like that? Like just crap just keeps piling up on you and like you, like you can't turn back. It's like you're too deep into this now. You know Jesus has done too much for you. And you know that there's no life found anywhere else. And like you, you just have to keep following him. It's like you have no other option. That's because God finishes what he starts in us. All right, but what did the believers know? What did the early church know? And what did they do that helped them to persevere through difficulty? Right? God is ultimately sovereign over our salvation. I won't deny that. But what do we need to do and what do we need to know? What is our response to be? So after like a 15-minute intro, let's hit the text. Right? This is good times. Now it's time for the good part. Acts 4, 23 through 31. Luke writes this. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. And when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. This is what they prayed. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. The English Standard Version says everything they did was predestined according to your will and your hand. Verse 29, and now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Let's pray real quick. Father, It is not in our strength that we persevere. You must hold us. Father, I pray that you would increase our faithfulness. 
Father, open up our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts to the message that you've proclaimed. Holy Spirit, speak through me that your people would be encouraged, that unbelievers would be shown the grace of the gospel, and that we would understand the sovereignty of God the Father. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what did... What did, what did they do, right? What was, the, what was the, the first thing that the apostles did in that passage after they were released from, from being arrested? The first thing they did, uh, verse 23 tells us, is they went to other believers. Other translations will actually say they went to their friends, or like they went to their people, which is really interesting. And, and they went to them and they told them their situation. So they told their friends, friends implying other Christians. Now, why would they do that? Why would they immediately say, I, we need to go to other believers and tell them this? Uh, among, uh, among many reasons, I would say this. They understood, and I really want to drive this home during this summer series. They understood that we are family in Christ. Right? They went back to their friends. They went back to other believers because they understood that we are family. Right? What does family entail? We bear one another's burdens. Right? We are here for one another. We care about each other. And the apostles truly understood that. Right? And this is, this is something, uh, I read this line, solitary Christianity is a myth. Right? This, is, this is great. Like, I wish I would have thought that up. Like, I'm not that original. Like, that's a good line. Right? Solitary Christianity is a myth. It's an incredibly American thought, and it usually comes from, like, we've seen too many like, Rambo movies, like the loner guy is like, the cool one, and we want to be like that, like the tough loner. Um, but I, I think this. We try to do this Christian life following Jesus being a disciple all by ourselves because we generally like to put up a front to other people, right? Like this veneer Christianity that says, like, all is well, man. Like, I'm just coasting through. There's nothing wrong with me. My life rules because for some reason it's, like, considered, like, a sin for us to tell someone else that, like, we have a problem going on. And that is a ridiculously foreign concept in the New Testament, Right? Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, family. Words like that are thrown all like the people of God, the children of God, the family of God, brotherhood. All these things are thrown around all the time in the New Testament because I think God is trying to get through to us that this life is not meant to be lived alone. Right? Like, God is a trinity. Think about this. Perfect communion, Father, Son, and Spirit. They associate with one another. They talk. <laughs> Right? Just throwing that out there. Um, so we, being made in that image, have been designed for community. Right? Whether you're a Christian or not, no one likes to be alone. I mean, I'm kind of a hermit, but like, no one wants to be alone all the time. We all need someone to tell our junk to. Right? Not only that, but transparency with each other is actually what, something that the Bible calls for. Like Galatians 6.1 tells us to bear one another's burdens. Right? Uh, James tells us you know, to, to confess our sins to one another so we can pray for one another so that we might be healed. Right now, what does confessing sin and bearing one another's burden have in common? Transparency. People have to know what you're, what's going on in your life. So I just wanted to, just real quick, just wanted to hit that thought. You got, we can be honest with one another about our weaknesses. We really can. I know that's kind of a foreign thought for some of us. But we can really be, we can be open about our weaknesses, about the struggles that we're enduring, uh, sin in our lives. We can be open about our doubts, Right? Like, is the Bible true? Does God exist? 
You know, and I'm not denying either of those things, but we can be open about our doubts. Like, hey, man, I read something in the Bible, and this is just crazy to me, and I don't understand. Or I don't understand how God is still good whenever he would let something like a shooting happen where 50 people are killed. How is he still good? We can be honest about our doubts. We can be honest about our fears of the future, all of these things that, that are natural to human life. And why, as Christians, can we be transparent about those things? Because the gospel proclaims all of them already. The gospel proclaims that we are weak. We are sinful. If we were not weak and sinful, Christ would not have had to die for our sin in our place. We can be honest about being weak. We can be honest about our doubts because the gospel proclaims that Jesus did not doubt in our place. He was perfectly righteous in our place. We can be honest about our fears because Jesus was unafraid. He trusted the sovereignty of God the Father perfectly in our place. The gospel proclaims that we're jacked up already. Why can't we like tell other people so that we can pray for one another? Right, so I just want to throw that out to you guys. Right, but practically, we go to other believers because only other Christians can pray for you. Only other Christians can truly sympathize with your situation as a Christian. And only other believers can offer godly and biblical advice to you. Unbelievers cannot do those things. Right, so why would we go straight to our unbelieving friends rather than going to our family? with our problems. Just wanted to throw that out there. Right? Never be ashamed. Right? Be real and be open with your family. Right? But, um, but what else did they do? Right? Just kind of wanted to fly by that one because I think that's pretty important for us to remember. Um, but verse 24 tells us, one second. That is delicious. I think it's hot up here. Um, Verse 24, if you're on the podcast, I just took a drink of delicious Diet Coke. Um, But verse 24 says the next thing that they did, right, is that they prayed about the situation. Right? This is what's funny to me. This is the first thing that they all agreed to do once everyone was up to speed. Right? I'm sure Peter and John were praying before they got there, too, just throwing that out there. Um, And the fact that this was the first thing they thought to do should smack us all in the face really hard. Or at least me. I know I'm not crazy, so I'm not the only one. How often is this our first response to trouble? How often is prayer the first response? Like, too often, we we would all, honestly, we would all rather worry or complain, or be angry, or begin to make a plan, like immediately, like that, that's our knee-jerk thing, if you're like me, like I tend to worry about stuff, and start, all right, man, what are we going to do, like if Peter and John would have been like, hey man, they're going to start persecuting us, I'd be like, where are we moving, like, <laughs> like seriously, like that would have been my first thing, like can we start planning, like, how, like are there jobs in Damascus, you know what I mean, like I'd have been like, where are the other job, like opportunities for me, I would start planning, Right? Or some people, if you're more of a man than me probably, you would say, like, I'm going to take immediate action. Right? I'm going to take immediate action uh, against my enemies or, or whatever kind of action that you think is necessary. But we do all of this kind of stuff. We contemplate all of these things before the first thought of taking it to the Lord who controls everything. <laughs> That's stupid. Seriously. That's, that's just really, really, really dumb of us, that we would think about doing something else before talking to our Father in heaven about this who controls it all. Right? Like prayer tends to be the thing that most people are least consistent with, right? that I talk to, um, and, and myself. Like I'm the guy, I would, if, like, if the Lord would let me trade off sometimes, like, hey, yeah, you can read your Bible like three hours a day and just not pray. I'd be like, okay, fair trade. Like I could do that. Um, but like, really, like, if, if we have that kind of an attitude, right? I'm just 
trying to be as transparent as I can. Um, we reveal that we don't want to pray, which what does that really say about our hearts? That we don't want to be in, in communion with our Father? That we don't want to talk to our Father? That we would rather do anything but talk to Him? Right? Like, we don't pray because we don't want to most of the time. Like, like, legit, we would rather do almost anything else. But like I said a second ago, what does that reveal about how we view God? What does that, view about, what does that reveal about how we view ourselves? A couple of points. If you, if you think prayer is pointless, you must not think God is powerful. Or if, if you think that you can handle the problem by doing something all by yourself, you must think that you're more able than God. Those are just a couple of epiphanies that I had. If we think prayer is pointless, we must not think very highly of God, and we must think very highly of ourselves. Right? But the prayer that they pray is the biggest piece of the text, and it reveals their heart and their attitudes for enduring this trial that has come upon them. So let's break it down. It's my favorite part. We call this exegesis. We get to break a text down. All right? Verse 24. I'm going to read, and we're going to jump back and forth. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And this is what they prayed. O Sovereign Lord, Creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. Stop. Sovereign Lord. This is the foundation of everything. This is the foundation of everything that we believe as Christians. This is the foundation of how we're going to endure a trial, no matter what it is in our life. They knew that. That's why they start out declaring God's sovereignty because they say, this is where my hope for my life is rooted. This is where my steadfastness will come from is that my God is the creator. He made everything. He is the ruler. The word sovereign, the Greek word that they use there means the one who dictates everything. He says and it happens. No one can contradict him ultimately. That's what, the, that's what the word for sovereign means in Greek. He is the ruler of all things. He's the sustainer of life. Actually, the Apostle Paul in one of his sermons in the book of Acts says that like, all of our movement, all of our breathing, everything that we are is through him. He sustains everything. Colossians chapter 1, Paul makes the same point about Jesus Christ. He sustains. Right? In the Old Testament, whenever they would pray, they would call him king. Right? King of all things. You decree and they happen. Right? The Old Testament says that God is like the owner of, of, of the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? He's rich. He owns everything in all of creation. That means he has total, complete, sovereign control over everything and everyone. Every, every beast in, on the earth, every, every beast in the sea, all of us. He has total, sovereign control. He's huge. We really have to, like, get our, like, we have to, I mean, we're never going to get our minds around the fact that God is, like, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everything, right? Because it's just too big for us. But we really need to adopt a huge view of God, or we're never going to learn how to suffer well. Ever. We're never going to be able to, to hit a trial with joy. That's unshakable. If we don't get a big view of God. This God that we serve knows all, and he sees all, and he rules all, and he is all powerful. Right? So taking all those things about this sovereign Lord, this being the foundation of the prayer, this means this, that this God, our Father, who has proven his love for us, and that he wouldn't even withhold his son from death in order to save us. 
This huge, powerful God loves you personally if your faith is in Jesus Christ. This God who loves us, he knows the end from the beginning. This is something the prophet Isaiah says in the Old Testament. Actually, God's speaking through Isaiah. He says, I am the Lord. I know the end from the beginning. And what's really awesome about him being the sovereign Lord who decrees and things happen, this means that not only does he just know with like foreknowledge, but he actually brings it all to pass. Everything that ever happens, he makes it all happen. He is the one. He is the one who's in control. Right, so I, I make those points because as they praise God and they affirm his sovereignty in all things, they're really remembering his control in the midst of trial. That's what they're rooting their prayer in. And they actually go on to give an example in verse 25 uh, through 28. So they, they affirm his sovereignty. They're praising him and extolling him for these things. And then they say this, You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So that's the quote, and then verse 27, they pick back up in their prayer. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. So after they affirm the sovereignty of God, really what they do is they set forward an example of God's control over awful situations. And in this, they're saying that he foretold them and he, then he actually ensured that they would come to pass, right? That, that, whole, that whole bit, starting in verse 25, why were the nations so angry, right? That, that whole bit that they're quoting is actually a quote from Psalm 2, right? It's, psalm, it's the second psalm, verses 1 and 2 is what they're quoting. Um, just throwing this out there, like the whole, like, God tells the end from the beginning. This psalm was written by King David uh, about a thousand years before Jesus came to earth, Right? So God said through David, a thousand years before the fact, right? because God's plans are eternal, eternity passed, he decreed everything that would ever happen. Right? God said through David that the nations and rulers and kings would gather together against the Messiah, which means that they would gather together against Jesus. But he also calls the plan futile, because they would not prevail, because God's plan is going to be the one that prevails. But then here's the crazy part. So David says that a thousand years before Jesus, and then it happened, Right? Verse 27. Right? In fact, this has happened here in this very city. Right? All those people united against Jesus. Right? The rulers and the kings. That's Herod and that's Pontius Pilate. Right? The the nations. Right? That's both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Right? The Romans. All these people gathered against the Messiah. But verse 28 is where the hope that they had kicks in. They said everything that they did whenever they gathered against Jesus was predestined by God. It was determined beforehand. It was brought to pass by God. Everything that happened to Jesus. When, When the Bible says everything, it means everything that happened to Jesus. His beating. The fact that He was stripped bare. His mocking is being crowned with a crown of thorns, slapping him in the face, spitting in his face, 
the, the scorn, the false trial where he was falsely accused of blasphemy, every wrongful thing they did to him, including his wrongful execution, his wrongful killing, all of it predestined by God. All of the pain and suffering of Jesus Christ was in the hands of God the Father. Every ounce of it was the will of the Father. Isaiah says it was the Lord's good plan to crush the Messiah. To crush Jesus. It was in the hands of a sovereign God. And in His sovereignty, we see that Jesus suffered death for us. We see that Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for us, all according to the will of God. Suffering was part of God's will for Jesus. That was the understanding of the believers who were praying this. That was the understanding of Isaiah in the Old Testament. He was crushed for us according to the will of God. But Jesus was also raised from the dead for our justification, according to Paul. He was raised from the dead. And not only that, but according to Paul, he was also perfectly righteous for us in our place, all according to the will of God. Right? And the reason why I'm trying, I'm trying to really tease those ideas out is I hope that you can see this connection between suffering and beauty. Right? It's like they are like, you cannot separate them. They are like inextricably entwined together in the will of God. And he is sovereign over both the good and the bad. And he takes He doesn't take the bad. He actually decrees that the bad will result in the good. God does not react to a bad situation. He's already decreed the bad will result in the good. The beauty comes after the suffering. Right? And the believers who are praying this, they knew that they aren't better than Jesus. Jesus says, you know, like, no slave is greater than his master. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. If this could happen to Jesus, this could happen to us. So really what they're doing is they're reminding themselves that suffering and fear and trial and all of these things will come their way as a result and as part of God's plan for them. That's what they're affirming here. But they're also affirming that all of it will culminate in their good and God's glory. That's what they're saying in quoting that that psalm. In saying we saw it happen. Right? But in remembering Christ's afflictions, they reminded themselves of the goodness of God's will. And, and, and this isn't just found here in, in, in this passage that we're looking at. This is all over the Bible. Right? You guys know the story of Joseph in Genesis? Joseph in the Coat of Many Collars? Or Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dream Coat, if you like musicals? Horrible film. Anyway, um, but we see Joseph sold into slavery... Right? Because his brothers hate him. And Joseph suffers. And he's a slave for years. And he's in jail. He doesn't know what's going to happen. I'm sure he's terrified through a lot of this stuff. And then what do we see? By the end of it, because of Joseph's suffering and him being in prison, thousands of people were saved from starving. And Joseph looks his brothers in the eyes who sold him into slavery and says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God did not just take this evil and make it good. God actually intended the evil for good the entire time. He is that kind of sovereign. We see the Apostle Paul, right, who is jailed for preaching the gospel, who ultimately is martyred for preaching the gospel. And what happens while he's in jail? As he's suffering, he writes scripture that we all benefit from, that 2,000 years of people following Jesus as disciples have benefited from. 
And he would not have written these letters that became scripture had he not been in prison. What the Roman Empire and the Jews meant for evil, God meant for good all along, all over the Bible. God does this all the time. And I say that to say this, our trust in the good sovereignty of God undergirds all of our hope and all of our confidence in the midst of trouble. If we do not understand or trust in the good sovereignty of God, we have nothing. It's because of that. This is why we pray. Because we know that we can trust our Father. So after laying their foundation in the good sovereignty of the Father, they make their request. Finally. 29. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now here's where, here's where my head got split whenever I was studying for this. This is nuts. What did they pray for? Boldness. This is huge. They did not ask God to take the problem away. At least in this instance. I'm not saying that there is anything wrong with asking God to to do something crazy and remove the obstacle from your path or remove the suffering that you're currently going through, whatever it is, or, or whatever you see coming towards you. I'm not saying that it's wrong to do that. But what were they concerned with? They said, God, they're going to persecute us for preaching your gospel. They did not pray, God, remove them. God, strike them down. God, do... They said, God, make us bold. We want to be faithful to you in this. They asked God to increase their faithfulness. Their primary concern was faithfulness to Christ in spite of the situation. That means that, that this should be our primary concern whenever the He is on. Whenever we suffer, we should be crying out to God, keep me. Keep me faithful to you. That's because they desired to handle the problems God's way. That's pursuing Him through the problem. Right? But they didn't just have a godly resolve, right, that we saw in in verses 19 and 20 that I read in the intro where they said, you know, well, we're going to keep preaching. They didn't just have a resolve, they knew that their resolve would not be enough. They knew that they, in their own strength, would not be bold. They knew in their own strength that they could not be faithful. Right? And I'm just going to level with you. We are weak. You are weak. You will not white-knuckle yourself into obedience for the rest of your life. You will not do it. You will not white-knuckle yourself into faith. There will be things that happen to you and happen to me that will shake us to our core so hard that if God did not intervene, we would give up and leave the faith. I guarantee it. God must intervene because we are too weak. He must keep us because His strength is the only thing that's going to overcome our weakness. He holds us or we die. That is a fact. So our heart's cry needs to be, keep me obedient because I desire you to be glorified through this. Hold me. That needs to be our primary concern and not the removal of the pain. Not the removal of the situation. And honestly, in praying this way, we're just doing what Jesus told us to do on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 31-33 says, So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. 
But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. That's what they're praying. God, I want to seek your kingdom. God, I want to live righteously in the midst of this situation. Please take care of me. Hear their threats. Make me faithful. All right, so whatever situation you're in, whether it's your family's not getting along, or you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, or someone hates you, or you find yourself depressed, or, or you're afraid of the future, or you're worrying yourself to death, or there's sickness, or there's literal death coming in your life, We must seek God's kingdom and pursue His righteousness. We must have a godly resolve to please Him and honor Him through it all. And He says He will take care of us if we make that our resolve. And verse 31 says that God answers the believer's prayer with a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's already dwelling in all of us who are believers, who follow Christ But this is a fresh outpouring of the Spirit in verse 31 that empowers them for faithfulness to Jesus. God holds them fast to himself by pouring out his Holy Spirit on them. And he will do the same for us. And I don't say that because it's wishful thinking. right? Now, it may not be as instantaneous as they had, but it will come. Jesus Christ says this in Luke 11. He says, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? It's kind of funny to think about. It says, or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God will pour out the Holy Spirit and empower us for faithfulness on those who ask. That's a promise from the mouth of our Lord and Savior Himself. He will hold us fast in the faith. And He will ensure our completion of the race. I promise you that. One last scripture, Romans 8.30. And having chosen them, this is Christians. If you're here and a believer, if you're a believer, this is about you. If you're not a believer, if you put your faith in Christ, this can be said about you. And having chosen them, this is God. Having chosen him, he called them to come to him. This is saving faith. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory means he glorified them. They saw the end of the race. They went to be with him for eternity. God will empower us to persevere. He promises to. It's in his word, which means it's etched in stone. So to close, don't give up. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever your problem is, whatever it is that you're facing, I I, I might not know what it is. I don't need to know what it is. Don't lose hope. Remember that our God loves us and that He is sovereign. And then trust in His goodness. And ask for faithfulness by the work of the Holy Spirit. And push onwards towards Christ with a resolve to be a disciple in spite of the situation. He will hold us. Let's pray. Father, you are better to us than we deserve. We deserve hell and you give us Christ. We deserve to be cast aside and yet you say that you will give us boldness. God, we fail and we're weak. Increase our faith. 
Cause us to be obedient. Give us a Holy Spirit-induced resolve to know you, to follow you as hard as we can. Father, comfort the people in this congregation who are afflicted right now and let them know that you will not abandon them, that you hear the threats against them, you see the problem, and you're sovereign over it. And that even if we never get an answer to why we're going through what we're going through or why something has happened, that we know that you work all things according to your eternal plan for our benefit and your glory. Help us to remember that. Thank you for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.